They don't teach you in seminary how to deal with a full pulpit and where to put your water and all that. We got any Husky, uh, Husky, excuse me. We got any Seahawks fans out there? Anybody here who actually watched the preseason games? Yeah, this morning feels like a preseason game. <laughs> Pete Carroll, the coach, has a uh, philosophy, next man up, right? So if Russell Wilson breaks his leg, it's the next man up. So I guess I'm the next man up. But uh, thank you for staying tuned. It's been said that a person is not ready to live until he or she is ready to die. It's quite a profound thought. And it certainly has carryover for some of our um, favorite entertainment. Some of our favorite movies and books and stories are about people who are ready to die. They're not scared of it. Uh, we like those stories. We like those movies that center on a character who proves that they're not willing, they're not afraid to die, particularly when it comes to defending a cause that's greater than themselves. I'll watch movies like that all day long. In fact, you could almost say the opposite. Nobody likes a film about a weak man. Uh, we don't fill the uh, movie theaters seeing people who are wimpy, <laughs> that give under pressure. No, we want people that are strong. And, and you even see this, not just in, in secular media, but you see this certainly in church history. You read accounts like Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you read about men like Wycliffe and Luther and Tyndale, Calvin, Bunyan, Wesley, all, all men who would eventually give their lives because God called them to be faithful. I think of the many martyrs whom the Lord has called in the past to give their lives for the faith. And I think of their final words as they prepared to enter into glory. For example, in 1555, just before they were burned at the stake at Oxford, it was English reformer Hugh Latimer who famously said to Nicholas Ridley, quote, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust, shall never be put out. That's a man who's unmovable. That's unshakable resolve. Before William Tyndale was hung, he cried out one of the most famous prayers in all of church history. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Those are the famous last words of a man who was not afraid to die. Or John Rogers, the English reformer who said, that which I have preached, I shall now seal with my blood. Such boldness, such, such confidence, and we're drawn to stories like that to the degree that we begin to ask ourselves, am I like that? And the question forms in our minds, how does somebody become like that? How does somebody keep such a level head and a fervent heart when threatened with the prospect of death? Again, a person's not ready to live until he or she is ready to die. 
In light of those thoughts, I want to invite us into the text for this morning, into Psalm 16, wherein we discover such a man. The historical background and situation behind Psalm 16 is unknown, particularly because David speaks of what he is dealing with in such broad terms. There's no real details that we can begin to place at a specific time in his life, but my sense is David may be writing these words very likely towards the end of his life. What we do know is that David is standing between a rock and a hard place with death inevitably breathing down his neck. He doesn't just address here the presence of his enemies, but he also very clearly alludes to the prospect of his own potential expiration. And Psalm 16 really reads like a a personal confession and prayer. It was Puritan Richard Baxter who spoke of, quote, preaching as a dying man to dying men. This morning, as I seek to pitch hit, I want to attempt to do just that, to preach as a dying man to dying men and women. And we are indeed all dying. And so it's important we focus our thoughts and concerns and fears upon the word. And Psalm 16 deals with this very issue. It teaches us what it looks like to have both joy and confidence as we are confronted by the reality of suffering and or death. And we certainly feel the weight of that and the reality of that over these last two years. David demonstrates for us here in Psalm 16 what it looks like to live triumphantly in the face of impending doom. And so let me invite us to stand for the reading of our text, Psalm 16, wherein we will consider together uh, six markings of a fearless man. Psalm 16. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoice. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, as we enter into your word, 
As we inhabit this text, we pray that you would write the very themes and um, realities of Psalm 16 upon our own heart. Lord, we want to be a fearless people. And yet we struggle at times to know how to become that. And we feel fearful. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use your word to encourage us, to lift our spirits, to admonish us this morning, to maybe even rebuke us if we need that. Lord, we pray that you would tear away any barriers or human susceptibilities we might have this morning in terms of resisting the truths of this text. We pray that it would land powerfully upon our lives, my life included. And may you do it in such a way that you receive all the glory and praise. For it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So what is it that makes men like that? Well, again, we want to consider the markings of a fearless man. And the man in our perspective is David. And it begins, the first element is this, David's cry. Let's consider together the cry of David. Look at verse 1, David begins, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, here David begins with a right understanding of man. David knows who he is. And this, in a sense, is where it all begins. Yes, it begins here in the text, but it begins here for us as well. That we would cry out to God, realizing who we are, i.e. that we are not God. And this is really a common petition made by David in the Psalms to the Lord. Preserve me, O God. Save me. In Psalm 17, beginning in verse 8, David prays this very thing. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Psalm 25, verse 20, David cries out, Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. In Psalm 64, verse 1, David says, Hear my voice, O God. In my complaint, preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. You might say David was a man given to crying out, and he did so because he knew fundamentally he was utterly dependent upon the Lord. David understood his human frailty, and in turn, his utter dependence upon the maker of his life to both keep and preserve that life. Let me ask you this. And this is sort of a personal question. You don't have to say it audibly lest you expose yourself. But here's the question. To what or whom do you run to in times of desperate need? Let me simplify that. Where do you go when you get scared? When you become fearful? When you feel your own frailty? I don't think we should assume that everybody who is made a profession of faith, would naturally, instinctively run to the Lord. 
I wish it was that way. I think we all wish it was that way, that our first uh, knee-jerk reaction would be what David does. Preserve me, God. But if we were honest, we might have to own up to the reality that, no, my knee-jerk reaction is I run to my spouse or run to my kids. Maybe I run to my friends. Maybe I run to the church, and, and that's certainly a, a good thing. I don't want to dismiss that, but that's not what David does. And he certainly doesn't run to drugs or, or alcohol. He doesn't turn to the internet or the equivalent of that back in his day. He doesn't do that. He doesn't look to self-medicate. He doesn't pour himself into his job. Any of those things that we might be tempted to do, David doesn't do that, at least in this moment. You know, in this moment, David cries out to the Lord. And this is really, verse 1, is really the only prayer offered by David in the entire psalm. The rest of the passage is David really offering his personal testimony of faith as he finds himself standing among life-threatening circumstances. David's desperate. David feels his frailty. And his knee-jerk response, Lord, save me. Keep my life. Preserve me. Why does David say that? Well, he says at the end of verse 1, For in you I take refuge. It's you, Lord, that offer me a sure shelter. And for us today, the God that we look to for our salvation is the God that we are to look to also for our sustenance. The, the prayer of salvation really has these echoes, these sort of ripples. Yes, we cry upon the Lord to be saved, but every day of our lives we're saying, Lord, save me, help me, rescue me, keep my life. David had put his exclusive trust in the Lord and he had no intention of ever removing that. And so when the heat is turned up in his life, David flees to the Lord. That's the first mark of a fearless man. His cry. David's cry, Lord, I put my faith in you and you alone. Today, tomorrow, God willing, forever. And he does that because he knows if his life was to be preserved, it would have to be kept by the Lord. That's the first mark of a fearless man. Mark number two, his confession, the confession of David. Look at verse two. And, and here you almost have the flip side of the coin. Verse one is a right understanding of who man is. Verse two, David's confession really flows out of a right understanding of who God is. Verse two, David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. That's the most basic profession of faith and submission you could have. Anyone who's a Christian has essentially made that statement, Lord, you are my Lord. You are my master. You're my ruler. David goes on to say at the end of verse 2, I have no good apart from you. And really, this is the belief that will ultimately dictate David's behavior. In a sense, David seems to renew his commitment to God. You, you, Lord, are my Lord. You call the shots in my life. You rule me. 
not the other way around. And that being said, you're a good ruler, and I have no good apart from you. God, you are the rock upon which I stand. You are the anchor for my soul. David, in fact, says so famously in Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Which is really kind of a, a, a dual reality. In a sense, you could say, David is saying, The Lord is my shepherd, and that's why I shall not want. Is that to say David had no human needs or desires? Of course not. But David says at the end of the day, what I truly need is what the shepherd, my good shepherd, provides for me. Again, I ask, to to what or to who do you look or run to when you find yourself up against it? Because in David's life, it was his relationship with the Lord that kept him secure in any and every situation. And he's not alone in the psalm, Psalm 73, one of my favorite psalms, verse 25, Asaph, his confession is this, quote, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What a statement, what a profession. God, you are the source of every good in my life. Who's God to you? I mean, I would like to believe we would all say, my God is the God. But that's really between you and the Lord. You're the only one that knows that. And the Lord knows it as well. He knows your heart. But this is a, a, a key question, even moving deeper into it. What do you make of his son, Jesus Christ? Matthew 16, Jesus himself entered into this very dialogue and and highlighted this very key, very central question. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, we read this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's a title for Jesus. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples said, verse 14, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then verse 15, Jesus narrows the scope. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Really, it doesn't matter on a personal level what other people say. It doesn't matter what this church says about Jesus Christ, when you stand before the Lord in glory, the question is, who do you say I am? Who do you say? What do you say about Jesus Christ? What is your profession? And women, I I can't oversell that. That is one of the most important questions you can answer. And your response ultimately says everything about your eternal destiny. David himself says, I have no good apart from you. Is that on my end? It's my beard, isn't it? It's terrible. I have no good apart from you. The scriptures acknowledge elsewhere that the Lord is the source of everything good in life. God is the source. 
James writes this. In James 1, beginning in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, but uh, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the source of every good and every perfect gift in our lives. But again, what David is saying here is that God is his greatest and highest and only good. Not the gifts, but the giver. In other words, David says here in verse 2, in a sense, you, God, are, are not only the source of every blessing in my life, but you yourself are the greatest blessing, the ultimate gift in my life. That's the power of the cross, is it not? That God gave of himself when he surrendered his son. When he sent Jesus to die as he did. So that he might ultimately, in Peter's words, bring us to God. That's the second mark of a fearless man, his confession. Mark number three, his companions. His companions, look at verses three and four. David says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And this part of the text really speaks to the importance of, of right relationships. As for the saints, saints is this word that can be translated as, as holy ones or, or consecrated ones, those who are in the Lord, you might say. And when David highlights or identifies this group of people, he's really identifying fellow believers who are those who are rightly related to God and those who in turn, fear him. As for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, David's going to really have a contrast here. Later, he's going to identify his attitude towards the ungodly, but here he's identifying, verse 3, his attitude towards the godly, towards the saints, the, the excellent or glorious ones, the true and devoted servants of God. And David highlights this because he knows that he's not called, called to be a lone ranger. Nor are we. We don't live the Christian life in isolation. Look around. You need those all around you. I need you and you need me. Talking with me. Praying with me. And me for you. And encouraging each other. And holding one another accountable. God forbid any of us ever live in isolation. That is a, a recipe for disaster spiritually. And Satan loves it when he can cut us off and remove us from relationship and remove us from the community. If you knew how this weighed so heavily on the hearts of your pastors, particularly over these last two years, they know that to be in isolation physically may be to your spiritual detriment. Lord knows they know. Which is why we need them and they need us. We need to be praying for each other because we as the church are a body. And that is really one of God's greatest blessings, the, the fellowship that we share. That component before and after a service. That too shares in the worship as we come together. 
as we fellowship together. And women, it's within the life and community of the body of Christ that we experience the wide array of the one another's. We love one another and are devoted to one another and are called to honor one another and and build up one another and accept one another and serve one another and, and forgive one another and to comfort and encourage one another. That's what we're called to do. That's what I'm called to do for you and you for me. As a member of God's family, David wanted to be with other men, other people of like faith, particularly as he faced trials. I got to be honest, there's been times in my life where I am hurting so bad that my knee-jerk reaction is, I don't want to go to church. I want to go to church on good days, but the hard days, what is it within me that wants to isolate and be alone? Is it because I'm afraid of being exposed as being frail? Probably. Is it because it's, it feels more comfortable personally when people can see me with a smile rather than see me with tears running down my face, not knowing what the Lord's doing? I say that so that I can hopefully invite all of us into that. That if you're hurting... You, my friend, are in the right place. You're among family. And family cares for one another. We love each other. And and Lord knows, some of us can be really difficult to love, myself included. But we come together. We support each other. And ultimately, Christ, who is our head, binds us together and, and grows us together and holds us together. And he's the example, not me, not Pastor Patrick. Christ is the example. He ultimately is the Holy One. And so if you truly are in Christ, anyone who's a fellow brother or sister in the Lord, they're ultimately closer to you than any blood connection you may have with a non-saved family member or any close friend who's unsaved. Have you realized that? David acknowledges in Psalm 4 verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. That's you and I. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. You are are a consecrated one. And you have been made holy for a reason. If we had time, we could go through Ephesians 4, where Paul lays out the, specifics of what it means to be members of that one body. Where he says in verse 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Men and women, that's the church. We are a unique, unparalleled spiritual organism. You thought you were just showing up and filling a seat. No, you're a member. And I'm a member. And we're called to be a faithful member. And some of us might be pinkies, but pinkies are very helpful. You might be a big toe. But big toes, they they tell us where our tables are in our house when we kick them, right? Even they have a use. Even they serve a purpose. 
We need each other. And David could just as have easily sung that hymn, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Is that how you feel? Are you glad that you're a part of this family? David knew that he was counted among the members of God's chosen saints. And so in turn, he knows that true believers will genuinely desire the fellowship of other true believers. But then he goes on in verse 4 to contrast that with his attitudes towards the ungodly. Look at verse 4. David says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall, be, shall multiply. One commentator, uh, he, he described this as the intensification of, of adversity. This is what happens to the ungodly. The godly are made holy, but the ungodly are, are ultimately not delivered as the godly are. The unbeliever is, is he, he's up against it, not just it, but God. It's God who's bringing adversity into his life and trials so that he might ultimately be turned to him, that he might bow the knee. David says, I, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, but, but those who are opposed to God, I want nothing to do with them. He goes on to, to use very graphic language in the second half of verse 4. He says, their drink offerings or their libations of blood I will not pour out. He's describing these sorts of ancient cultic pagan practices. He goes on, and, and I won't take their names. The, those names were the names of their false pagan gods. I won't, I'm not going to utter those on my lips. You won't catch me talking about them. And whoever that is that, that David is describing, there's, there, it might have been very, the very people who were threatening David's life, either idolatrous Israelites or, or pagan Gentiles, but whoever it is, David says, I, I don't want anything to do with them. I don't share any real fellowship with them. I'm going left and they're heading right. I'm moving closer to the Lord and they want nothing to do with him. There's a very clear line in David's life and in terms of his companions. Those he keeps within his closest alliance and fellowship. David says, I'm not envious of, of them, of unbelievers. I'm not standing here thinking life would be so much easier if I just oppose the Lord like they do. No, very much the opposite. And yet we today can struggle with the very thing that David doesn't seem to be wrestling with. David's not jealous, but there are other psalmists who were. Again, Psalm 73. Verse 1, Asaph admits this. This is why I like this psalm. It's so profound. He says, truly, and, and understand Asaph is a, is a worship leader. This is a worship leader saying these things. Listen, Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In a sense, Asaph says, I know, I know that God is good to his people. But this is what I feel. This is how I feel. I'm jealous. And women, there are times we find ourselves looking beyond the family of God, looking at those who don't have a personal commitment to Christ and, 
And some of the weak moments of our lives, we find ourselves, if we're honest, a little bit jealous. I'd like to sleep in on a Sunday morning. I'd like to be able out doing something rather than sitting in a pew. I'm not saying every day. I'm not saying that's the trajectory of my life, but I do in my finite human flesh find that at times I'm a little bit jealous. I'd like to be able to own that thing. I bet you if I saved up my tithe, I could own that. Maybe that's just me. But Asaph says that. And ultimately, he comes full circle knowing that that sin always results in the forsaking of of personal peace. Or as David identifies it here in verse 4 of Psalm 16, sorrows. In fact, there's that great contrast between these two verses, verse 3 and verse 4. Blessing and sorrows. Those who are the holy ones, those who belong to to the family of God are tremendously blessed, more than we'll ever realize this side of heaven. But for those who have opposed God, they are suffering now. And they will suffer on into the future. And I mean eternally. David says, what's to be jealous of? You may be having the time of your life right now. Listen, sinners right now are living their best lives. Yet for us, the best is yet to come. And that's not to say that we aren't blessed here and now in very real ways. David acknowledges in Psalm 32, verse 10, quote, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Asaph, again, Psalm 73 and verse 18, he comes full circle and he says, he declares verse 18 and 19, truly Lord, you set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. In that sense, Asaph finally comes to his senses. Yes, I was jealous, but I had the wrong perspective. I didn't see things as they truly are. Coming back to Psalm 16, our text, David's committed to avoiding those who are opposed to the Lord. He says, I'm, I'm just not going to allow myself to get sucked into that because I know where that leads. My loyalty, my allegiance lies exclusively with the one true living God. That's the third mark of the fearless man. Mark number four, the contentment of David. The contentment of David. This is verses 5 and 6. David says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. In other words, He is the very means of my satisfaction and, and sustenance. He goes on to say, You hold my lot. There, David's speaking of his own life and his personal circumstances. He's saying, in a sense, My life, Lord, is in your hands. You, Lord, you are the grounds and very basis for my existence. Again, David's continuing to differentiate between the good gifts and the good gift giver. Let me ask you this this morning. A lot of questions. Of all the things that are currently in your possession, think about them for a second. Everything that you own, what are you going to cherish the most when you come to the end of your life? What is it? Is it the car? The summer home, the winter home, 
Is it your bank account? Your scrapbooks? What is it? If it's small enough, what's going to be the thing that you're going to turn to your loved one and say, bring it, can you bring it to, to, to the hospital or can you bring it before me so I can look upon it just one more time? Can you just drive the boat outside the hospital so I can get one more glimpse? What is it? Somebody you might never expect me to quote from a pulpit has something very profound to say this morning to us. Stephen King, the American horror fiction novelist. Stephen King, in, on June 19th, 1990 line, 1999, was out walking near his home in North Level, Maine. And as he was walking those four miles, at some point, a distracted driver came along. And as the story goes, his dog began to go for the beer that was in the car and the driver was so distracted that, no kidding, he hit Stephen King. It was very severe. This was no mere glance. It almost took Stephen King's life. It took two years of recovery. Well, Stephen King, two years beyond that accident, he actually pinned an article in Family Circle magazine. The article was entitled, What You Pass On. And in this article... Stephen King, somebody who is without a doubt not a believer, at least from what we can see from the reality of his life, but Stephen King speaks in this article to the futility of materialism. Listen to this. He says, a couple years ago, I found out what you can't take it with you means. I found out while I was laying in a ditch at the side of a country road covered with mud and blood and with the tibia of my right leg poking out the side of my jeans like a branch of a tree taken down in a thunderstorm. He's a good, <laughs> he's good with words. He says, I had my master card in my wallet, but when you're laying in a ditch with broken glass in your hair, no one accepts MasterCard. King goes on, we all know that life is ephemeral, but on that particular day and in the months that followed, I got a painful but extremely valuable look at life's simple backstage truths. He says, we come in naked and broke. We may be dressed when we go out, but we're just as broke. Warren Buffett, going to go out broke. Bill Gates, going out broke. Tom Hanks, going out broke. Steve King, broke. Not a crying dime. He says, all the money you earn, all the stocks you buy, all the mutual funds you trade, all of that is mostly smoke and mirrors. This is a non-believer saying this. He says, it's still going to be a quarter past getting late whether you tell the time on a Timex or a Rolex. No matter how large your bank account, no matter how many credit cards you have, sooner or later, things will begin to go wrong with the only three things that you have that you can really call your own. Your body, your spirit, and your mind. For a man who does not know Christ, I think he sees something that certainly is reflective of divine truth. Men and women, we need to find our contentment in the Lord. I mean, it has to be bedrock anchored in the Lord. It goes way beyond just lip service on a Sunday morning. 
David says, Lord, there's nothing I could own. There's nothing I could lay my hands on that accomplishes for me what I truly do need. None of it sustains my life. One, two, three homes. One, two, three wives. None of it. I read you that lengthy quote because people build their lives and and even base their very existence on some of the craziest things, some of the loosest sand, some of the shakiest foundations. And none of those aforementioned things have even the slightest power or sway over the next breath that you or I take. None of it. And it's certainly none of it dictates when you will take your final breath. God meant everything to David, which is evident in the ways in which David built his entire life around the one who gave David that life to begin with. And he describes it by by utilizing these common Old Testament metaphors here in verses 5 and 6. He'll go on to write this in verse 6. The lines, really boundary lines, have, have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. There David is identifying the covenant blessings and promises that he has in the Lord. And really the language there of those two verses, verse 5 and 6, seems reminiscent of Israel's conquest of Canaan, as recorded in the book of Joshua. Chosen portion, lot, the lines, inheritance. But that being said, David has more in mind than just the physical blessing of land. These really, as you consider them, are, are quite powerful statements made by David, considering the difficult nature of his circumstances at the point that he was most likely writing these very words. If he really is on death's doorstep, in a sense, what David is doing is nothing less than boasting of the many covenant promises and benefits and blessings that he has in Yahweh. I mean, talk about having an eternal perspective. Lord, you are the means of everything I need. A lot of wants, a lot of desires. But Lord, you are the one I need. And in you I find my deepest contentment. Is that how you feel this morning? Is that how I feel? That's the fourth mark of a fearless man. Somebody who's determined, that is resolved, that has their eyes focused upon the one they ought to be focused upon. The fifth marker, the counsel of David. The counsel of David. Look at verses 7 and 8. David says, I bless the Lord, or I praise the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. None of us is beyond needing some help. That's why we come here on a Sunday morning. It's not good enough to just hear a message and and run off. We need this daily, which is why we see this in the Psalms time and time again. A daily uh, coming before the Lord. Morning, afternoon, evening, all throughout the night. Turning to the Lord. And turning to the Lord, we in in turn are instructed by him. That's why he says, in the night also my heart instructs me. There he's he's talking about uh, the sort of meditating upon the things of the Lord. 
In a sense, when, I'm, when, when the moment's quiet, the lights are down, no one around, where's my head at? God willing, it's focused upon the Lord. And it's considering the things of the Lord and asking the Lord to teach us, instruct us. Men and women, all of us need instruction. All of us need wisdom for daily living. There's more, we need wise counselors to advise us in how to act and to speak and to think and to live. None of us, again, can live in isolation. And for David, David says it's the Lord who does that. David magnifies God because of how he had taught and, and tutored David. This is reminiscent of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verses 98 through 100. It says, your commandments, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. That's God's word. And David says, I have the author who's speaking these truths to me daily, firsthand. He goes on to say, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Morning, afternoon, evening, night, God is there in the position of leading and guiding and instructing. He's always before me. Because as David says, he is at my right hand. You know what your right hand is? It's the place of closest reach. It refers really, in terms of an understanding of that phrase, it refers to one's personal help or a sort of defense, either in court or in battle. David says, because the Lord is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I'm not flinching. I'm resolved, unmovable, unshakable. See, David knew that there was nothing that he could encounter or ever come up against that was stronger than the Lord Almighty. And women, that's the reality of David's walk with God. And it's not to say that David it was not removed from sin. We all know how the whole story goes. And yet as we consider this, this is what David's faith looked like. Christ himself commands us in Matthew 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All the daily concerns, the pressures of life, all those things that we could lose sleep over. God knows those things and he's going to provide for you. So rather than worrying about the things we can't control, let's be more focused upon God's kingdom. That certainly was David's primary aim. David's chief goal in life was to love the Lord and to live for him even to the point of death. And the psalm actually crescendos as he shares who his counsel is, that fifth mark of the fearless man. It crescendos in the final three verses where we see the sixth marker, the confidence of David. David's confidence, verses 9 through 11. David says, therefore. Now, any good Bible teacher will instruct you, will teach you, and you've learned this time and time again. Whenever you experience a therefore in the text, what do you ask? What is the therefore, therefore? 
The word therefore is this literary turning the corner. And that's what David is doing. Therefore, in light of everything I've already said, in light of my prayer and my confession, in light of all of that, David says, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. He says, my flesh also dwells secure. All of that is the behavior that results from David's aforementioned beliefs. Because of all of that, because of everything that God is to me, I have no fear. And in place of that fear, the sort of fear that inhabits the hearts of those who don't know the Lord, in place of that, I find incredible joy. I find a confidence that is not of myself. This isn't David phoning it in. This isn't David drumming it up. This isn't David on a, just on his best day. No, David is speaking to what the Lord has been doing in his life and was continuing to do and would do all the way up to the day he took his final breath here on earth and entered into the kingdom of heaven. David says, how could I not be like this given everything that God is to me? David says, I have no fear going forward as long as I'm following the Lord. And that's the thing. That's what it all hinges on. If you're following something or someone else, you have great reason to fear. But if you are following the Lord, there's no fear. David goes on to say in verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol was understood to be the dwelling place of the dead. You're not going to abandon me to the dwelling place of the dead. Or he says, let your Holy One see corruption. And this verse is where we get the sense that David is possibly facing his own eminent demise. Either because of a fatal sickness or external threats. Whatever it is, David says, I'm not worried. I'm not stressed out. I'm not running around seeing how I can extend my life. Rather, I'm trusting the Lord. And just look over the passage. David uses some graphic terms to show just how all-encompassing his commitment to the Lord is. Verse 7, my kidneys. That's a literal translation. We have it translated in the English as my heart, but it's, it's splankna, my, my guts. Verse 8, my right hand. Verse 9, my heart. Verse 9, again, my glory, my flesh. Verse 10, my soul. All illustrative ways of saying, with my whole being. Again, David's not just half in, half out. No, this is an all-encompassing desire. This isn't something that David's going to do until he doesn't do it. David says, by the grace of God, this is who I am. And women, this is David's confidence. Particularly concerning his facing eternity. He says, I've been secure in life, but now that I face death, I'm not worried because I know the Lord's protecting me. That's incredible confidence, particularly as you consider David's trusting the Lord to sovereignly care for him. He says, I know that the Lord is not going to desert me. He's not going to forsake me. He's not going to let me wander off the path for a while, so I'll learn my lesson. 
David says, sink or swim. I know that the Lord is going to watch over my life. And not just this life, but the life that is to come. And sink or swim, I know that I belong to him. And he is caring for me. That's pretty profound. As you consider David. But the gut punch is that prophetically, David isn't just talking about himself here. Did you see that? It's a familiar phrase. One we actually hear in the New Testament. Verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And women, when David wrote those lines, unbeknownst to him, he was speaking of our Lord and Savior. Verses 8 through 11, those, those four verses actually distinguish this text, Psalm 16, as a messianic psalm insofar as it's quoted twice in the book of Acts. First in Acts 2, where Peter quotes uh, verse, uh, in Acts 2, verses 25 to 28. And then second, in verse 10 of Psalm 16, uh, Paul quotes it in Acts 13. And in both of those texts, Peter and Paul are actually applying the words of Psalm 16, not to the lesser David, but to the greater David, to Jesus Christ. Specifically with regards to, to Jesus' event of his resurrection. In fact, men and women, this psalm, Psalm 16, may have very been one of the passages of Scripture that was lingering in Christ's mind that he himself was meditating upon while hanging on the cross. See, I'm not calling you to look to David. I'm calling you to look to the greater David. To look to the Holy One. David's confidence, as imperfect as it was at times, was also our Savior's confidence, and yet Jesus was unflinching. Jesus has no asterisks to his life story. There was no high times and then low times. Rather, Christ faithfully, consistently, perfectly looked to the Father all throughout his years on earth. All the way up to where he spoke those dying words, Luke 23, verse 46. Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That is sheer trust. And there's simply no fear when we're following the will of God, when we're walking the path that our Savior walked. David underlines that reality in the closing verse, verse 11. Look at it. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Verse 11 could really stand as a summary of the Christian life. As well as a reminder of the promise that death is not the final chapter in the life of the believer. As I said before, let me say again, the best is always yet to come for the child of God and for the follower of Christ. And what David is doing here in this psalm is he's celebrating the fact that the present path upon which he was walking, what he calls the path of life, he knows that that would ultimately lead all the way into the future wonders of eternal glory, what he's now deemed pleasures 
forevermore. In fact, that was the very conclusion of his most famous psalm, Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David says, my relationship with you, Lord, is never going to come to an end. Not even when I enter the grave, not when I die. My hope, my confidence is that it will continue. As will all of your constant blessings. Not the least of which is you. You, Lord. You've given yourself to me. And you've given yourself for me. And because of that, I'm not afraid. And women, the glory that awaits us as God's people is more glorious than we'll ever realize. And we think, we think we've wrapped our mind around it even as we read texts like Revelations 21. But those are just mere tastes of what awaits us. And so the pain that you're going through this morning, the fear that is very real, please don't interpret this message, this sermon as a way of me trying to dismiss legitimate fears. But understand, take some perspective with me and I too will try and have some perspective so that you and I will grow less fearful of dying and more excited for what awaits us. Not just the glories of heaven, but to be with God and to see Christ for who he is. And as John says, God himself will be with us as our God. And he will wipe away every tear. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Why? Because the former things will have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, John says, Jesus Christ himself says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Do you long for that? Is your confidence resting in the Lord? Are you following him? Do you have that eternal perspective? Puritan Richard Baxter writes this. He says, If we did truly believe that there is indeed such blessedness prepared for believers as the scripture mentions, surely we should be as impatient of living as we are now fearful of dying and should think every day a year until our last day should come. Lord, let that be the attitude of my heart. Baxter goes on to say, if a man that is desperately sick today, did believe he should arise sound the next morning, or a man today in despicable poverty had assurance that he should tomorrow arise a prince, would they be afraid to go to bed? Or rather think it the longest day of their lives till that desired night and morning came. That, my friends, is an eternal perspective. It's only in the Lord that you and I will ever find true satisfaction and true joy in this life and a lasting confidence in the face of death 
David was so dependent upon the Lord in every way that he saw his entire life wrapped up and intertwined with the being and blessings of his sovereign God. And there was such a single-minded focus within the heart and mind of David that he himself bore out the elements of a man who had no reason to fear, even fear of death itself. And women, death is a defeated foe, defeated by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us in Romans 10, does he not, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, you trust in the Lord, you will not be shaken. David wasn't a man who attempted to run from his own mortality. Rather, he was a man who stood ready to die if and when that day arrived for him. May we too, because of our Savior, have that same unshakable confidence. May we trust in the Lord more than we trust ourselves. And may we long for that day when pain and sadness and tears will be a thing of the past and we'll see our Savior face to face. Let's pray. Father God, when the tests of life come and they will come, and for many of us, we are standing in the midst of them. But when they come, Lord, it is because of our faith in you and our trust in you, our clinging to you, that we ultimately need not fear. Lord, it is not on us to make these marks a reality in our lives. Rather, we are dependent upon you to shape these things in us, mold us into a man or woman who has no need to fear. Remind us of everything that you have made possible, everything that's come true because of your sovereign omnipotent work in our lives. Lord, thank you for this morning. Pray that you would use anything I've said to turn others to Christ. I pray that you would continue this conversation in the lives of those who do not know you, that you would continue to call them to yourself, that they might discover you for who you truly are, the good shepherd Lord, thank you for being a great and heavenly father. Thank you for the sending of your son who died in our place, who's defeated death so that we no longer need to be fearful of it. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.